0: Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 852, with Chef Jeannie Parola.
1: A lot of chefs grow up and mention their grandparents. My grandparents really were all about food. Everything was a meal. What was the meal? When was the meal? What were we eating? And so that became a language of love for me. It really did. And so I realized I had fallen in love with food, but then what can you do with that? What can you do with being in love with food? And then I realized... Restaurants. And I just became fascinated by restaurants and still am.
0: Are you ready for it, it factors? Success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatori in and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Nowadays, people don't want to speak face-to-face. They rather communicate via text message and keep it anonymous. Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is convenient to you. And I think the most valuable Aspect of talk to the manager is that you give people an opportunity to vent before they go public and write a negative review. Sometimes people just want to be heard, and talk to the manager gives them that opportunity to be heard. Plus, you don't have to worry about your information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the phone number that talk to the manager provides. Also, with talk to the manager, it's like having a secret shopper. People will tell you any issues they come across at your restaurants, whether you want to hear them or not, but they'll be brought to your attention and that will help you improve your business. Show your guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Pop Menu gives restaurant owners the tools they need to transform their online presence, simplify their ordering and delivery, and take control of of their marketing pop menu will build your restaurant a website that is designed to engage guests showcase your menu with featured photos and reviews and allow you to ditch those boring pdfs but pop menu is so much more than an online menu each pop menu site is built with in-house delivery options to open up more revenue streams and to meet guests where they want to eat and you can easily set up curbside pickup and contactless ordering and pop Menu remarketing tools enable you to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. Trust me, with Pop Menu, you will take your restaurant to the next level. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at PopMenu.com slash Unstoppable. One more time, PopMenu.com slash Unstoppable. listeners, You get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. What's going on? Unstoppables and happy New Year. This is the first episode of the new year and I don't know about you guys, but I could not be more excited for the future. I think I think there's a lot of optimism right now, honestly, and I think there's a lot of stress because things are changing. Uh, things are uncertain, but you know what? I, I just think that I'm hopeful. You know, I'm hopeful for the future, and I think there's going to be a lot of interesting, exciting changes, necessary changes happening in the new year. So let's go into the new year with some optimism. And uh, I mean, we couldn't have started the new year off with a better episode. Chef Jeannie Parola is joining us today. And uh, Chef Jeannie was one of my interviews down in Tampa, uh, the second to last interview. We still have one more. We're going to drop on you guys before we start uh, doing some more recording in 2022 but chef Jeannie's story is awesome she grew up just outside of tampa in a uh, small beach town i think her family had a, a beach resort Resort or a hotel of sorts, uh, where she grew up working there, and she convinced her parents to let her open a restaurant. Uh, she, it didn't take her long to realize that she had a lot to learn, so she went to go work for the best, which is what I would tell anybody to do: go work for the best and just learn and absorb information. And she went to go work for Burns Steakhouse, one of the most well-known steakhouses in the country. She was there for a, a while, worked all the way up, eventually became executive chef. Uh, this experience allowed her to travel the world, helping people open steakhouses across the world and just restaurants in general across the world. Uh, she eventually came back to Tampa, and today she is the chef proprietor of Edison's uh, Swigamajigs and Counter Culture. This was a really great episode. She actually, Jeannie actually made me cry a little bit. So a little teaser. We, we get emotional <laughs> in today's episode, but you guys are going to enjoy it. Here it is. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest chef, owner of Chef Driven Restaurant Group, Chef Jeannie Perola. Jeannie, are you feeling unstoppable today?
1: Pretty much, yeah.
0: Yes, and I cannot, I'm feeling unstoppable today. I mean, first of all, i got to give a special shout out to my, my new friend, Peter Lazar, for introducing me to so many people in such a short period of time. I've done five interviews, I'm only here two days.
1: That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I didn't. I had one interview when I landed. Right on. So he has been throwing amazing people at me, uh, and because of that, I'm going to these interviews with literally like a blank canvas. I I didn't know your name until this morning, and I impressive. didn't even know I was talking to you <laughs> until this morning. So it's going to be really fun for me just to be curious and pull back the layers and learn about you in real time. That's literally what's happening right fun now. Fun for me too. Yeah. So before we dive into who you are and what your story is. Let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm in the the restaurant business. I'm a chef who is in love with food and restaurants. So my kind of success mantra is truth and menuing. Um, what you present and offer to your guests is kind of like, kind of like a solemn bond of what you're expressing and showing, and asking them to keep coming back for. So, truth in menuing is a is a really important mantra to us. That's
0: the first time I've ever heard that expression in 850 episodes. Truth <laughs> in menuing, and and when I hear that, I think it's it's what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. And, and is that accurate?
1: Well, we we try to create menus that set up a little bit of expectation and excitement. We always try to have a little something familiar in a dish, something a little bit unusual. So something welcomes you and then something surprises you. But the truth in menuing part is about our commitment to quality and execution and the level of ingredients and technique and our pursuit of, you know, cuisine and we're students. So it's just an important uh core value that we live by.
0: Yes. That is the second core value in the restaurant unstoppable network that I created. Is that we are students, mm-hmm. and and the reason is is because I think if you need to if you're going to be successful in this industry, you have to accept and realize that the learning is continuous. It never ends. Well,
1: that's the reason to get into it. Yeah, it's just never boring. Yeah. you know I've been doing this. Well, just to say a little while, <laughs> and uh, I've never been bored. Uh, and that is kind of was something i was afraid of as a young person like ooh, i grew up at a beach resort so i was like the same day goat you know groundhog day every day was the same thing so to not be bored after all these years uh it's extraordinary but the you know the yeah. land of cuisine is vast and it's yeah. forever changing
0: of course and if you if you have a, a insatiable curiosity right mm-hmm. then this is the industry for you for sure because there's never a, you never get it all Exactly you learn right. your entire career. So, thank you for setting up that this conversation with that success quote. A uh, great way to get this thing started. Let's because I literally know nothing about you. And I literally except for the fact that you're a badass restaurateur in Tampa. Uh, that's that's the extent of my knowledge, and that you have three restaurants. And Actually, now,
1: that's enough. Can we quit it here? Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
0: this is a great conversation. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Um, get in. This, I like to use the analogy of getting into an airplane. I used to be a commercial pilot, so let's zoom up to thirty thousand feet. Right, paint that big picture for me. How you got into the industry and the stops you made along the way, without getting into any detail.
1: Well, uh, I was born in Ybor City, grew up with Spanish and Cuban parents, so food was always everything. And when I was uh, in elementary school, we moved to Anna Maria Island, we got into the beach resort business. And by the time I was 20, I was, as I said, concerned about boredom. And I had fallen in love with food. And that's where I opened my first restaurant, started to hone my craft. And uh, then I ended up uh, leaving that because I knew I didn't know anything, and I wanted to learn from people that I respected. So I went to work for Byrne Laxer at Byrne Steakhouse and ended up there, you know, left and came back and was there for about 11 years and had an extraordinary uh, education and experience, and it was the greatest gig ever. Um, And then it was time to move on and open my own places, and that led us to Edison uh, Food and Drink Lab, which led us to Edison's Swigamajig at Sparkman Wharf and our new baby, Counterculture, although she's a toddler now.
0: Edison, uh, what was the Swing Lab and what was the last?
1: Edison Food and Drink Lab is uh, our first restaurant, and then we opened at Sparkman Wharf, uh, Swigamajig, which is a dive bar and fish kitchen, uh, serving craft cocktails and fish and chips and stuff like that. And then we opened Counterculture here on Bay to Bay and Bayshore, uh, which is you know lunch and uh, brunch and dinner.
0: Okay, and, and uh, when did Counterculture open?
1: Well, you actually opened, if you can believe this, on December twenty fourth of twenty nineteen, which was three months before we had to close from COVID. So we were open for three months when COVID kind of hit us in the knees.
0: So the Essen food and uh, lab and the Swing Swingamajig bar are all still going as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are your three restaurants. Yeah,
1: Edison's about ten years old. Swingamajig's about almost four now.
0: Got us 2011 and 2015 were the other two. I like to have the dates because my mind works chronologically for some reason. I don't know why. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's get in to our helicopter now and kind of hover over your career. So I heard you say Ebor City.
1: Well, I was born in Ebor City, so we were, you know, Ebor City is a lot about the culture. Where is Ebor City? Well, it's, uh, you know, the French Quarter in New Orleans. Ebor yes. City is like the Latin Quarter in Tampa. It's okay. just a little bit east of here, and it's, uh, you should go visit it, man. It's I should. very cool. I'm in town. I mean, it's really uh, the cultural, the Latin, Italian, Cuban, and Spanish cultural hub of Tampa. Um,
0: and it's a killer place to be. So it's that. where my ancestors would have landed if they decided to come to Tampa. It's exactly where
1: a lot of catchatories <laughs> went, Eric. I don't know how to explain that to
0: you, but there used to be a, a
1: store there. I mean, the Cacciatore name went on for a long time in Ebor.
0: So I, I got a good reputation in the town of yeah,
1: You might of even Tampa. have some relatives. I
0: should, I should do some research. Um, so Annie Marie Island... did did i say that i hear that anna maria island Island. is that is that a local island here too i literally know nothing about the area
1: right on it's an island it's a barrier island off of the gulf coast just an hour south of here and uh, that's where i grew up
0: okay And this is where you got in. Your parents were in the business, right?
1: Well, my parents were in hospitality. They opened a beach resort. And so we were all things beach resort, you know, pools and sailboat rentals, jet skis and, you know, the beach and fishing and and accommodations. And after a while, uh, it was, you know, that's a tedious lifestyle, although it's a lot of fun. I mean, it was a great lifestyle. But I just had fallen in love with food and I talked to my family into opening my first restaurant there and. That's all
0: she wrote, really. So your family was kind of uh, in the just the the tourism, uh, really, like renting out like mm-hmm. fishing rods and stuff like that. Yeah, it was know, a
1: real you... beach resort. No, it's yeah, it was a beach resort. Yeah, it was entire... a beach resort. Okay, mm-hmm. so
0: your parents owned a beach resort. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long? Was it like a pass down to them? Did they open it?
1: No, we actually built it from the ground up. My brother was a contractor and we built this beach resort. It had Gulf to Bay property. It was an extraordinary uh, way to grow up, really. Um, and we had it for like 25 years. Wow. Yeah. That's a good run. Yeah, it was.
0: So what did you learn from it? I know you said you left because you you, you needed to learn, but you must have learned a few things from being around, seeing your family and knowing what you know now. Well, what,
1: what I, I I certainly caught the hospitality bug. The idea of, uh, you know, breaking bread and welcoming people. And uh, I kind of dug that a big time. But I really loved feeding people. I mean, I really do. I don't know what that is. I think a lot of chefs grow up and mention their grandparents. My grandparents really were all about food. Everything was a meal. What was the meal? (laughs) When was the meal? What were we eating? And so that became a language of love for me. It really did. And so I realized... I had fallen in love with food, but then what can you do with that? What can you do with being in love with food? And then I realized restaurants, and I just became fascinated by restaurants, and still am.
0: I have a theory on this, because this is a common story. I just love food. I don't know what it is about food. I love food. Well, it's connection. What's that?
1: It's like connection, feeding people, being together, eating. Exactly,
0: and, and I think that it comes down to, and I don't know if this is true to you, and I want to put words into your mouth, but I think that, and it almost sounds like kind of pathetic to a certain sense, but I, th- but I think we need to be seen. I mm-hmm. think, I know that we need to be seen. I think a food is a great way to instantaneously get gratitude and, and to see that somebody approves of you.
1: There's absolutely no question in what you're saying. Let me, let me, <laughs> let me distill it down for you. I feed people to be loved. Mm-hmm. That's really it. It is that simple. You just want to be loved, right? And you think if you fee- feed people and make them comfortable and happy because food has always made me so happy right? that uh, it just seems like a language I can communicate in.
0: But it makes sense that we need to, that, that that's such a strong internal instinct for us. Because mm-hmm. if you look at, you know, the needs of a human and the very Bottom base of that—it's physiological needs. We need to sustain ourselves. We need security, right? Mm-hmm. And if we can prioritize that internally as something that we just need to be seen, we need to give food and like we just there's just grad this gravity towards it, right? Mm-hmm. That we can't explain. We just need to do it, but it makes sense because it's crucial to survival. We need to feed people. To, to, to now, it's not as important, but when we were you know ten thousand years ago, it was a matter of life or death. Right on. Right? Is that too deep? Do you think?
1: Uh, you know, I was debating whether I should go deeper. Frankly, go deeper.
0: <laughs> Bring it deeper.
1: Well, you know, when you grow up in a family that maybe love wasn't uh, expressed, mm-hmm. you find another way to express it. And my family showed us love by feeding us yeah. and and preparing these um, these meals that really drove the narrative for us. It, it really did.
0: And you see that in a lot of immigration, like a lot of immigrant cultures, mm-hmm. where we didn't have a lot when we, when we got here, but we had each other and we had even if it was tripe, we had food, right? right on. Something wrong
1: with tripe, brother. Yeah,
0: right. But we had, who makes it. we had that awful, we had that, that right. stuff that we could get our hands on what we could afford. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think we probably resorted, we, we resorted back to that because it's all we have when we got here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we're taking it too far, but who knows? I, I think there's truth to that for sure. Um, so you fell in love with food because of this instant gratitude this ability to feel like you're, you're being seen, you're being, you're feeling appreciated. You're feeling loved. Um, what about the actual food itself, the the act of cooking?
1: Well, it's it's the greatest gig of all. I mean, when you can put together an idea that maybe seems a little bit fresh and unique when, you know, everything's been done, but it can continue to motivate you and you are in the process of putting all that together, um, it's exhilarating. It's exhilarating to be in a kitchen. It's exhilarating to be on a line. It's exhilarating to watch those plates go out and see them see them come together. Um, it's just an exhilarating lifestyle. I don't I mean I'm sure other people feel exhilaration through other things. Um, but it's hard. It's a hard lifestyle. Don't get me wrong. I mean at this age, I certainly am feeling the last three decades of standing in a kitchen. But uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And and what, you know, the intimacy that you experience with a bunch of people on a line getting through a service of, you know, however many plates and dishes and whatever happens on that line that night, um, it's a great sense of productivity and completion at the end of the night to have that go well. When it goes bad, it's tough, and uh, there's a lot to be learned. Um, but again, for me, even after all these years, it's still an exhilarating process to be cooking and putting together um plates that make people happy.
0: Yeah. And what, when did you realize you needed to go break out and do your own thing? And was it was it your first stop burns?
1: Well, uh like I said open my first restaurant. I my I was lucky. Oh, that's right. I was lucky my my parents afforded me this very cool opportunity where I opened my first restaurant tialina's Linus. Um, had a gulf view, sunset view, it was so awesome. Um, And that was a greatest learning experience. But after a few years, I just knew that um, there were other people really doing amazing things. And I just wanted to be up next to them and see that and learn that and see how I could absorb and if that can make me better.
0: Yeah. And you said that you you... Your, your, did your family help you with? Because I remember you mentioned you told your family you wanted to open a restaurant, right? That oh yeah, you, you expressed this to them. Did they help you with that?
1: Well, well, yeah. I mean, we, my fam- my parents actually lived up over the resort in the in the kind of building that faced the golf. So my mother and I kind of hatched this plan because she wanted to move out of being over the office. She was tired of being in the fishbowl. Yeah. And so we hatched this plan that we needed a restaurant in the, with that view. And uh, so she was my partner in crime to uh, convince my reluctant father. Um, but once we all agreed, um, it was probably one of the greatest journeys with my family was their support in opening that first restaurant. It was really amazing. It really was.
0: What made it the greatest journey? Just the support of your family in general?
1: Um, I think it's the first time in my family that I was able to just do this thing that was just unique to me. My siblings weren't involved. My parents were overviewing. They really, really did something very crazy in a way. They really let me create what I wanted to create. And again, Eric, I didn't know anything. Um, And it just by luck had it and really hard work. It it worked out. Um, But... When I think back on it, I kind of ask myself, what were they thinking? I mean, because there was no reason to open that restaurant. We had absolutely no experience. But, the, you know, that's what happens in this business. But that's what
0: everybody does. Everybody wants <laughs> yeah. to open a restaurant. It's Wouldn't it it's crazy. be fun to open a restaurant?
1: Yeah, until right? you do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you're like, okay. But
0: that's why I'm really excited about this story because you you did it. And just like all my listeners out there, not all of them, but a good majority of them, I would say the majority of them, are exactly in your case where you were. How old were you when you opened your first restaurant?
1: Uh, twenty three, four, wow. something like that. Think about that. It what was me? a cakewalk. I have to be honest. I was afforded a great opportunity. I didn't even get a clue until I hit other people's restaurants and started working with other people, and I realized you don't know anything, Jeannie. Yeah,
0: <laughs> you've
1: got a, You've got some building blocks to acquire.
0: So, um, what was the year? Do you mind not to date, but what was the year? Just to kind of paint that picture. Did I were, open my first restaurant?
1: Yeah. Uh 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 gee. I wanna say God, do we have to answer this? Eighty nine? Eighty nine, okay. Eighty eight, something like that.
0: I just like to kind of paint the picture of like I'm um, works chronologically. Um and how long did did you have that restaurant?
1: Well I was I stayed uh at my family's resort three or four more years after we opened it. Okay. And then I uh decided to move to Tampa and go to work for Burn and um my family took it over. But then a few years later, my parents decided to retire and they sold the whole thing.
0: Okay. So until like for like 89 to 93 around, give or Mm -hmm. take a year, you were at this restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Knowing what you know now kind of get granular, go back into that process of what you did then paint that. Well, just tell us what you did and, and how you opened it and the way you were doing business before knowing what was the right way.
1: Well, you know, we did every every mistake you've ever heard. What, what's the reason most restaurants fail is because I'm, of lack of capitalization. Yes. It's the number one reason. And if I can share anything, the only thing that is we all think, even to this day, we kind of think, well, once we get open, it'll be okay. Yeah. As long as we can get those doors open. But you know what I liken opening a restaurant to? What's that? Your wedding day. And how much does a wedding day really married, matter to the marriage? It doesn't matter whatsoever. Right. You go to all this planning to open a restaurant, like a wedding. Yeah. You go crazy planning every detail, like a wedding. You go crazy worrying <laughs> about the budget, like a wedding. Yeah. And then there's all this stress and all this passion and all this desire to get this animal open. And you get it open, and you're like, I made it, home free, home free. No. The marriage is just beginning. Yeah. And sadly, so is your journey yeah. if you just opened a restaurant for the first time.
0: And your wedding almost never goes exactly as planned.
1: It, actually, a <laughs> restaurant opening, I think weddings are more uh, stable. They're more stable than a restaurant opening, quite <laughs> exactly. frankly. yeah. Because restaurants is openings always something happens
0: but that's exactly why i tell people just to start where you can and it might not necessarily be a restaurant but start where, where, where you can share your vision and gradually swing into it right it doesn't have to be it's good advice yeah it doesn't have to be something that you drop the hammer and now you're open for business start with pop-ups start with that's you, how i it, restarted actually exactly. it's a great
1: it's a it's that's interesting you bring that up because i, I was at burns for about 11 years i left and um, it was 2008. Let's, when let's eight.
0: shelf that because we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. No, I, I'm excited to get into it. But let's go because I, I kind of derailed you because you're telling us about all the things that you did wrong. And I'm mm-hmm. loving this conversation, by the way. So um, really get back into uh, reflecting back, knowing what you know now, what um, you what other things you just didn't know that you, you should have known. You're undercapitalized. You mentioned that.
1: Yeah, undercapitalized. Just uh, you know, opening a restaurant without the strongest business plan. Back then, we just did not know what we were doing, and so we made all those rookie mistakes, those first-time mistakes. So, proper capitalization for a solid business plan. You know the old saying where they say have 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 money to go six months. You may not get any revenue. It's just so true because what happens is the plant that you build, this restaurant that you build, maybe it's going to take off. You know, when you first open, if you're lucky, you're going to get that great crushing honeymoon where everyone comes to see you. You're in a honeymoon period. But then that second year, that's that sophomore slump. Are they coming back? Is everyone that you got coming, coming back? And then in your third year, if you don't start to see that tick up, that's when you have to get concerned. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just such a, such a hard business and you you can never plan for everything that happens. Yeah. But solid business plans with solid capitalization and an idea that you can make it. A good long run in case it doesn't happen at the register with consistency. Because it takes time for that store to open and people to just have it in their stream of consciousness and start to use it and have it in their go to list. I mean, how do you make dinner reservations or dinner plans? You're like, I'm at home. I don't want to go anywhere. What's my go-to what's yeah. in my one mile radius or who can bring me Uber or whatever. You know what I mean? So yeah.
0: And what chef Jeannie was just explaining is the law of uh, diminishing return. So uh, like you said, when you start crickets and then things are start to get louder. Right. Um, and then you start word of mouth starts to get out and then you get really busy because you're the new kid on the street. Right. And then things skyrocket. But after a while, you're no longer the new kid on the street after exactly. a year or two. And then that's the law of diminishing returns. You better
1: be doing something right.
0: Exactly. So I, I got to give a, a shout out to our friend Peter Lazar who made this introduction. Uh, he gets really into detail with that, with his book, which, which is the reason why I came to town to, to, to discuss his book with him. Um, he gets into how you bring people back and how you keep that growth going and the, and the tricks and tactics. I won't get into that now, but if you're interested in that, he really breaks it down. Well, um, so keep going from there. You, 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 Things get busy and then things start to settle down for you. Is that what was going on? Well,
1: usually after a restaurant opening, there's always kind of a sophomore slump because everybody's come and visited you. Yep. And how fast are they going to come back? I mean, mm-hmm. that's your job is really to get them back and to get into their Rolodex or on their phone or I guess Rolodex is an yeah. ancient term. But you know how I mean that. Get on their go to. Yep. Um, it just takes so much time for you to be in a stream of consciousness where you're it's literally hitting your sales with regularity so yeah
0: so kind of reflecting back what you know now about how to do that well mm-hmm. what weren't you doing then in order to bring people back or were you doing things well
1: no i think honestly i think we've done an okay job um because we always have we've thrived and we've continued to see our sales grow even at edison 10 years old but I'm, I'm we just about had about the it. most extraordinary october
0: And i don't know if i'm going to say this right but it was a. Uh, uh, Tia Lina's? Is that the name of the Tia Lina's. thank mm-hmm. you. Um, Tia Lina's, were you doing that then?
1: At Tia Lina's, uh, just imagine a kid in a sandbox who just experienced sand for the first time. That's what that was. <laughs> <laughs> that was just, uh, you know, the food was good because I was we were so in love with food and I toiled over all of what we did there. But, um, you know, where I am now and how I do business now is just so incredibly different and how we set up an opening now is just so incredibly different because we've just learned so much yeah. and and we want to be assured that we're going to stay open
0: So reflecting back at Tina's feeling is knowing that the people that are the majority of the people that are listening to this might be with their first restaurant mm-hmm. if you could go back and give yourself advice that things you wish you knew then that you know now what would those things be Don't be undercapitalized know that you're going to have to people eventually things are going to quiet down so you are going to find a way to bring people back right Mm -hmm. what else
1: well i think you have to have excellent service i think even i even as a chef i'm sad to say that sometimes a service is so much more important than the food um because People just – things are so convenient now. People want convenience and ease, and they don't want disruption. They, You know, and as a restaurateur, you're trying to create a seamless experience where there's no bumps and grinds and weirdness. It's just a a really wonderful, seamless – no matter how you're using the restaurant, even if it's I'm coming in real quick for a meal or it's a big deal with a group of people, you just want it to be a seamless experience where they're experiencing – the food and the service and the ambiance, not like the waiter's having a bad day, his wife's mad at him, and, you know, the, the the chef is having a bad day or whatever. You you just don't want any of that to ripple through. So what I would suggest to anyone who still has a new restaurant, who's in a new restaurant, is um, study the basics. And it's really about what are you delivering on that menu? Is your menu are you truth and menuing? Are you delivering what you're promising? Mm-hmm. How good can you get at that? How much more can you refine that? Because it's a constant pursuit, constant daily, even after 30 some odd years. It's a yeah. constant daily pursuit. And then it's about really understanding your service. And if you're meeting the needs of your guests, you cannot, there's no way to apply um, enough attention to those two disciplines, uh, what you're serving and how you're serving it.
0: Mm, awesome stuff. Um, so you decide that you need to go out. You need to learn. You wanted to learn. You wanted to surround yourself with the best. You you choose uh, Burns Steakhouse. Um, the year now is about 93 when you choose to go out. Something off. like that. Yeah. Uh, mid-90s was that. Uh, Maybe late 90s. You yeah. got there. You got hired, right? Mm-hmm. Day one. <laughs> what's going through your mind? Uh, what have I done?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know i'd own my own restaurant and i go to work for burn laxer and i i think i started at seven dollars an hour wow. in the uh onion soup station putting cheese on crackers i put cheese on crackers for like six months and it's easy to tell the story now i because i knew then it must have been some kind of metal test and i just had to pass it but i could tell you that i went home many a night where i thought the only thing i have is a pair of thumbs I can press cheese on
0: crackers.
1: (laughs) I thought that for a really long time. But uh, it was an experience that was life-changing, life-altering, and he was the greatest mentor I ever had. I mean, that is – Bern Laxer is one of the greatest restaurateurs to ever ever walk the planet, the things that he accomplished and how he did it. And a lot of people don't understand his commitment to the food. He was the original chef. I mean, he came up with so many genius things. Um, that are still there today. I mean, how do you argue with that long run? Uh, it's an extraordinary restaurant. Well,
0: he's on my radar. Um, and I he's, even, even the time I've been there, that name of Burns has come up a few times. Um, of unfortunately, course. we weren't able to make it work because they are on my radar, but I would love to get that interview to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. I don't really know much about it except that everyone's telling me i should talk to him
1: well it's the greatest well (laughs) burn is gone now but his son runs it and you you should try and get an interview with his son because he's been there the whole time and understands the animal like nobody Um, but it's an extraordinary restaurant with the stories and the tales and the people that have been there and that have walked through those doors uh both in the back and the front it's extraordinary it really is
0: so this was your education Right,
1: uh, Definitely huge, huge, huge part of it.
0: So what were the biggest lessons reflecting back at this time, the aha moments of like, I didn't think to do that. Why didn't I do that? Like, oh, is that's how you're supposed Like, what were these things that were kind of the aha moments that were coming to you?
1: A lot of aha moments with Burn Laxer. Um, number one, uh, nothing was going too far for him to get what he wanted with his food. He would go to the, you know, back then they would buy the grain, to grind the flour, to make the bread, wow. to break it into croutons. I mean, the extraordinary details. And when I saw that, it was a mind blowing thing because. I felt like I would go to the ends of the earth for my food. I really did. And I never saw anyone else do that. And when I met him and saw that, it was extraordinary.
0: The power of relativity. For real. Relative to you and your world before this, mm -hmm. you thought that you were doing everything possible. But then you see somebody who spent their whole life Mm -hmm. and you can see just how much further. And
1: then just the simple lessons, the clarifying lessons that he taught me. Like he once said to me, what do you think is the number one word? In the restaurant business that relates to success. Get back to me on that. And I, cause I didn't know it. I'm like, what's this one word? I walked around all day just breaking my brain. What's this one word? I just didn't know what this one word could be. Finally, I go up to him. I'm like, tell
0: me. Please.
1: <laughs> He's like, consistency. Mm. And I'm like, I actually knew that consistency. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like the unthought known, like, you know, it's buried in your head. And then someone says it, you're like, wait a minute, that's in my head. Consistency is so critical. People want to know, Uh, you know, you're creating a value when you're creating a restaurant. And that value experience has to really be true for your guest. So... Consistency is the way to achieve that because they have an expectation. They come, they enjoy something, then they come back. If it's consistent, they'll keep coming back.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what did you learn from Mr. Burns about how to deliver consistency? What things need to exist? Well, it's discipline. Okay. It's
1: it's you know, it's getting the best products you can. It's using the best execution you had, and then it's just being consistent and disciplined and compliant. It's being compliant to whatever that recipe or preparation calls for
0: okay. doing
1: it that way every single time.
0: What things can you do to increase your um, discipline Are the things you can do to put in place to make sure that you stay disciplined?
1: Well, that's a, I mean, if I could answer that question, I'd be controlling weight loss clinics and all kinds of things. <laughs> the key to discipline. I mean, the key to discipline is, you know, really um, it's,
0: I'm sure you're doing it already.
1: The key to discipline I think is just it's a simple thing it's compliance it's com- it's being compliant to what they expectate what you set out to do so you've got to keep doing it and you've got to help your staff to understand that hopefully they don't have to speak exactly like me but can I get them to believe a little bit in the consistency and the co- and being compliant and, and doing things the way that we've learned. We obviously always want to learn new techniques, and so we're always willing to adjust and change and make it better. Yeah. But you still have to be super consistent in the way you execute and deliver it on a menu there, and, and experience.
0: Are there specific tactics that you deploy to make sure your staff is doing things the same way every time?
1: Well, there's we have all kinds of procedural stuff that, you know, Governs those kinds of things, but it's about, you know, watching every plate every single night and having everyone, whether it's the waiter, the busboy, the server, the, you know, the expediter, the, all the chefs, the line chefs, everyone's got to have their eyes on everything and, and putting everything out. I mean, there's going to be mistakes made, you know, sadly things happen on plates that you never want to see happen, but you just want to instill, you know, it's really about work ethic. And when you get people that are already young adults, you can't really give them their work ethic. They already have it or not. Um, Hopefully, you can inspire it. But I hire on work ethic. I don't really, yeah, if you have experience, that's awesome. But I really want to know your commitment to your work and because I think work is so defining. It's so much a part of who we are, what we do for a living. You know, it's kind of defining, what we do for a living of course
0: uh so you learned from uh the burns restaurant that uh you saw what was possible you got a new perspective of what's possible mm-hmm. with food. you learned about the, the importance of consistency and how to stay consistent what else did they teach you that you just didn't know until you you had this experience
1: that you can do really delicious excellent food at super high volume i mean they do extraordinary volume over there But it's so uh, systematic and procedural in the way things are handled that you can really expand. You can extrapolate um, from your procedures the kind of uh, service that, can continue to rev up and grow.
0: So that was actually the answer I was hoping for when I was asking about consistency is procedural systems and procedures. Uh You create systems, procedures, so it gets done the same way every time. Absolutely. And that's what a checklist is, right? Mm -hmm. That's what a recipe is, Mm -hmm. right? That's what a picture of what the food looks Mm -hmm. like.
1: That's what ordering is and shift notes (laughs) and all of these things.
0: These are all the things we can do to Mm -hmm. make things consistent. And uh, especially when you're doing volume. Well, mm-hmm. when you have to do volume well, which is how we got here. Mm-hmm. So, w- w- give me an example of the systems and the procedures that they implemented. Specific systems and procedures that you remember that made them do volume volume well.
1: Well, I mean, it burns. Yes. Well, they. It's a very big kitchen. The jobs are all bro- broken down in a in a very um, strategic way, um, and so that allows a. a Uh, a hefty amount of business but it's it's all about the way the stations are broken down the way your prep work is done that leads to opening and being prepared for service Uh, that's how it's done over there it's really kind of broken down
0: so it's breaking it down and deconstructing everything and then bringing it together Mm -hmm. so one person is responsible for one element of the dish and their focus is doing this one element well and then they bring it together so that way you don't have one chef in the kitchen trying to do everything right you can you can segment the responsibilities and that's much more like that's what you see when you look at like a, a like an assembly line right mm-hmm. at like a fast casual mm-hmm. same concept mm-hmm. it's just on a line and you're passing it down versus in a big kitchen they're bringing it all together from like all around right is that accurate, do you say?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, our restaurants are infinitely smaller and do it intensely different. But um, when you're doing that kind of volume that they do, uh, this system over there works. I mean, they've been doing it for like 70 years. Yeah. I can't argue with that.
0: Are there any other big takeaways, big lessons? Because you spent 11 years at Burns. So from like the um, mid-90s to the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. Any other big lessons? What was your progression there? When you left Burns, you started with putting cheese on crackers. (laughs) (laughs) Did they let you do anything else after 11 years?
1: Um, well, I was there for I worked there for about a year with Burn, and then he left. He wasn't able to work there anymore, and I left. And then I went back to work for his son, who had taken over, and um, I updated the menu at Burns. Then we opened another restaurant back then called Sideburns, um, I and I created that restaurant. I think and, of the
0: sideburns and the hair.
1: Right on, <laughs> and then uh, you know we started to do other things from there. I, you know, what I learned there is that. You can create really interesting offerings, and um, you know, for your guests, that will get them to come. Yeah.
0: You know. So you said you left. Um, so was it 12, was it eleven years collectively? Or? Yeah, collectively. Okay. So what did you do in between when when you left and you came back? Well, well, that was so long ago. You mean I <laughs> were you working in another restaurant? Well, yeah, I
1: opened a couple other restaurants, and then I went back to work with his son. That's when I worked another like ten years. And then I left, and then uh, that's when the economy was so bad. Two thousand eight, there was nothing opening, nothing going on. I actually left the country and went and worked for, um, did this consulting gig. But it ended up it was supposed to be nine weeks, ended up being like on and off for eighteen months in Limassol, Cyprus, and uh, worked for a shipping magnate who wanted to create this dining complex. So when I went there, I was I, I literally went there to teach him how to they were opening a steakhouse okay, and they knew my experience at Burns and, so, and just long story short, got me to come over there and do that. But I ended up creating a lot more dining offerings than just that.
0: So you, you left your own concept. You went to Burns. How long were you there for the first stretch?
1: I was at Burns for about a year with his father. okay, And then I was gone for a couple of years and I came back for about 10 years. Okay. I left there in like 2000, end of 2007. Got and it. then in two thousand. Eight and nine, I was working in Limassol, Cyprus.
0: So, when you came back and you were there for the the ten solid years, mm-hmm. um, where, where what was your what was your role at the, what, how high up the ladder did you climb? What I was, was you... chef
1: partner at Cyburns, I was executive chef at Burns Steakhouse. I was uh, a culinary director for the company. So,
0: let's talk about your growth as a professional as a chef, right? Because you when you left when you started working here. You had opened your own place. You were in charge of the kitchen there, but how did you grow as a professional chef under this, this mentorship?
1: Um, I, uh, just so many different ways. Um, I was charged with updating the Burns menu for the first time in about 30 years. So I went into just deep study on every single recipe that had been created there. It took me about two years to wrap my brain around it. Um, and that just started, uh, a level of, um, you know in-depth granular examination of recipes hundreds of recipes that govern that menu um it was thrilling it was so much fun to learn all that um but i really started to really understand recipes so well in cooking and it was it was a just unbelievable experience
0: what about leadership and how to run a kitchen
1: uh you know, that's a question that, you know, you keep asking yourself mm. is, uh, how do you get better? How 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 do you cultivate leadership yeah. in your people? And it's not easy. Um, people come to leadership with their egos and their um, self-concepts, and it can be a hard thing to navigate. Um, all you can do is, you know, really, cliche, but treat people like you'd want to be treated. Um, I'm certainly a, a very tough person. I like excellence. I have like a three-time rule. If I tell you the carrot goes like this on the plate once and you, you accept it and tell me it goes there, second time you mess it up, I'm like, remember I showed you, here it is, and third time, You're still doing it wrong. (laughs) I'm going to say this is the third time. And, you know, after that, if you're doing it wrong, you just don't belong with us. You you know, people weed themselves out. I famously say I've probably fired nine people in a 35-year run because – People weed themselves out. They don't. Some people just don't want that level of work. Some people just don't understand all that effort into yeah. food. My parents don't dig. My parents like simple food. You know, my dad's gone, but when my parents were alive, they their favorite thing is like literally bonefish grill and carabas. Yeah,
0: but that's a great lesson right there in itself. That if you have standards and you maintain your standards and you have a team of people that maintain that standards. You don't have to fire people because, like you said, they will weed themselves out. Oh, they do.
1: They weed themselves out. But as
0: soon as you start to fold and give a little and say, okay, well, we really need help right now. So I'll just let this this one person who's – what ends up happening over time is that becomes the new normal. Like what is happening now in this moment is the reality of your culture. So if you're letting that happen, the reality of your culture is that that's the new standard. Whether you want to accept it or not, that's a very clarifying
1: statement, Eric. <laughs> right? I'm glad you shared that with me today. It's nice reiteration.
0: <laughs> so it's very powerful. Uh, okay, so you leave, uh, you become, you, you know, you you manage to be the executive chef of probably the most well-known steakhouse on the one of the best in the country at this point, and definitely if not the best in in Florida, right? Safe to say,
1: I would say Burn Steakhouse is the greatest steakhouse on the planet. On the planet, I really would say that. So you, you need to go there and study
0: it. So you 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 climb to this level of achievement, right? Uh, you choose to leave. Why did you choose to leave?
1: Well, it's a long, long story about the economy and not getting uh, a big project funded in timing, and it just led to uh, it's time to make an exit plan.
0: Yeah. Um. So, what was your exit plan?
1: Uh. Well. Uh. Like I said, it's when the economy was so bad. That's when I worked in Limous- went to work at Limassol Cyprus um, for about 18 months. So the real question is, what happened when you got back?
0: <laughs> when, you, when you got back from?
1: Limassol Cyprus
0: forgive me because uh so you you left burn steakhouse mm-hmm. you went and you, what's what was Limberpo- limbersol cyprus that was
1: cyprus is a country outside of greece okay that's right thank you and limousol is a metropolis inside uh you know city inside uh cyprus and this shipping magnet uh wanted to build a dining complex with basically the centerpiece being an american style steakhouse Through a long group of people, they connected to me, knew I had just left Burns after spending those time there and wanted me to come over there and help them do steaks. So I, you know, I couldn't, there literally was nothing going on in this town in 2008. I mean, it was 2009. It was a ghost town with the economy the way it was. So... I took that consulting job and it was absolutely thrilling because everybody was like, Jeannie, do you know what you're doing? I mean, they're very sexist over there. I'm like, really? And I got to be honest with you, Eric, it was the greatest group of professionals I've probably ever worked yeah. with. They were phenomenal. Um, that's why it worked out and I stayed so long. But when I got back, uh, things weren't any better with the economy here. When and, did you get back? Um, two, late 2009. Okay. And uh, into into 2010. And that's when I actually read about Ludo in Los Angeles for the first time I heard the expression pop up. And I said, I'm going to do that because I read in the L.A. Times. I read like five or six newspapers every day, and I always read the L.A. Times. I just they have a great food section. I always read it. And there was a big story about Ludo. And he, could, he is a very famous chef and could not get any financing in L.A. at this time. And he's all over TV, international star, couldn't get financed. And I was like, "Oh my god, that's I'm nobody. That's terrible." And so he decided to do a pop up, and those pop ups led to him having permanent restaurants.
0: Side and- note: Isn't it crazy how we tell ourselves our self beliefs? Like you rose to be the executive chef of arguably the best steakhouse in the, the on the planet, and in your mind, you're telling yourself you're nobody.
1: Uh, yeah, that's. I hadn't thought of it that way. (laughs) Eric, are you sure you're a podcaster or are you some kind of therapist? I
0: I think I'm a podcaster.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Well, anyway, when I came back, we decided to do a pop-up and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. For anyone who wants to do a pop-up, feel free to call me because that is, you know, you're setting up everything from the get-go every single time and it's a nightmare.
0: This is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to kind of unpackage what your first pop-ups were like. And I'm really interested in this topic. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Look, nowadays people rather send you a text message than speak to you directly face-to-face. That's just the way people choose to communicate. And there's not much we can do about it, or is there talk to the manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is also convenient to you. Don't worry about personal information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the number that talk to the manager provides. You can even delegate customer feedback and divide the workload amongst your managers. Multiple managers can receive these texts. When one manager replies to a customer, the other staff will see their responses too. What I personally love most about Talk to the Manager is that you can fix issues immediately in private before complaints go public online. Many times when people do write a negative review, it's because they just want to be heard. And Talk to the Manager gives them that outlet to be heard before they bring it publicly and drag your name through the mud. Plus, with Talk to the Manager, get issues brought to your attention, whether it's an issue with your restaurant's service, product, or facility. Your guests will let you know whether you want to hear it or not, but this will help you improve. Using Talk to the Manager is so intuitive that no technology is required. If you can send a text message, you can use Talk to the Manager. Show guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. That's www.talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and I'm really excited to start diving into this idea of pop-ups. So what was it for you that was appealing about this idea of pop-ups?
1: I had been gone from Tampa Bay for about two years. And I honestly didn't think anybody remembered me. And when I read about the pop-ups at Ludo had done in LA, I just thought, well, let's just see if anybody remembers me. So we did our first pop-up at a breakfast and lunch place that did not serve dinner. And we popped up there for 10 dinner shifts and it sold out instantaneously. And we were shocked. We just had no idea. So we have the 10 days and it was really difficult, but it was fun and raucous, and it was delicious, and I was very excited about the food that I was doing at that point. And then um, we get asked by another restaurateur in town to pop up at their place. They were having a hard time paying their bills. They had no dinner service as well. So I, we went and popped up there for like 24 days. And then we got called from another restaurant tour, literally three other restaurant tours. I ended up doing four pop-ups in 2010 and 2011, um, with the last one culminating in a 30-day pop-up at actually where Edison Food and Drink Lab is now. Um, Because after we popped up there and kind of got so lucky, we sold the place out that the, the owner of that restaurant pretty much handed me the keys. Um, because usually they were asking me to come there because they were having a problem. And what we would do as a pop-up is we'd go in and pay our, their bills in advance. Cause we don't want any, you know, we don't want any confusion. If we were going to occupy their space, we wanted to pay for everything in advance, make sure there was no confusion or, um, you know, we just wanted to pay our way and make it work. So there'd be no problems. And we ended up doing it four times and at the fourth time that restaurant was in real trouble and they uh, basically handed me the keys.
0: Okay. Um, so with the first pop-up you sold out three mm-hmm. nights in a row, 10 nights, 10 nights in a row. Mm-hmm. Thank you for correcting me. Uh, how do people know that you're going to be there? Well, we started this
1: huge social media thing. I mean, we came up with this poster and, you know, put it out for everybody and, um, it just resonated for some reason. So, it, I think it was the novelty of it. You know, the novelty that someone's going into this place and opening for dinner service for just ten nights. And I had been gone for a couple of years, and I had learned a lot and studied a lot. Here. Yeah,
0: you know, people know who you are. You have roots. You can use your. your I got lucky.
1: I mean, I really didn't know that. I wasn't sure. You know, but uh, they they did come back, and it, it was. It was a, those pop ups were a hardest thing I ever did, but also probably the funnest.
0: I want to like create some type of like pop up one on one, like class course, like series of courses. And I and I, I know it's probably much more simple than I make it out to be. But what are the things that you need that to, to do a successful pop up that people don't understand? Number one, I think you need to create awareness around it. But no
1: question. You need you need awareness. You need, you need to have visibility. Either great social media, people helping you, or a great following. So, um, what did
0: you have? Did you have great social media? Did you have great I had following? all of it. Okay. I had a great
1: team around me of people who wanted to help. A lot of great um, minds around me, and um, you know, in marketing and and trying to get the word out and. Uh, uh, luckily,
0: uh, it, it hit some ears. Do you remember the the strategy, the tactics implemented to promote the, the pop-ups?
1: Yeah, actually. Um, <laughs> my uh, uh, This married couple friends of mine, Doug and Nanette, um, they are marketing people, geniuses. Um, Nanette actually wrote the line, no rules just right for Outback Steakhouse. Oh, I'm wow. not making that up. They're like genius people, two of the smartest people I know. And when I was talking to them about the pop up, I said they were like Doug was like, you know, you gotta consider yourself like a rolling stone. Like you like you went on a sabbatical, you've been gone, you've been out of the country, like the when the Beatles went away, and now you're coming back. It's gotta be like you're coming back for this limited showing. And with that, um our graphic person came up with uh this poster that was just yeah, very um uh provocative. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. It was provocative. Like uh, 10 hot licks, and it was like uh, kind of like a Rolling Stone mouth, but it was done in a totally different genre. But uh, it just, for
0: whatever reason, it resonated. It and popped. It stood out, right? It did. It did. Hit me. It was Doug and who?
1: Doug and Nanette. Annette.
0: Annette? Annette. Is their name... What, say it one more time.
1: Doug? And Nanette Hardy. Annette. Yeah, Nanette.
0: Nanette, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, they're
1: they're just genius marketers. So what I would say to anyone thinking about a pop-up is you're right. You have to create awareness, but you also – you got to have – you got to create something that people want to come and eat and enjoy and see what you're doing.
0: And do they have a business –
1: yeah, they're marketers. Yeah, What's, the Hardy group. You know
0: group. the, the Harding group. Okay. The Hardy group. The Hardy group. Thank you so much for people, yeah, correct. Yeah,
1: shout out to Doug and Annette.
0: Yeah, I want to make sure people know, and I'm coming after you, Doug and Annette. I want to. They're geniuses, I wanna, really. I want to. Yeah, we're gonna do a whole deep dive into the world of what they do if they're willing to come join. Yeah, them. I've got a piece of advice. Uh, surround yourself with a lot of smarter people. Yeah, absolutely. And this is evidence of that. Know your lane, stay in it, and you need social media. I'm actually going through this right now. I hate social media. I do not want to stare at a phone. I almost said effing phone, but I'm trying to be polite. I'm trying to be better about not cursing so much. Or a computer screen. I don't I don't interact well through those. I, I like the physical world. It's obvious
1: know? it's a pair of headphones and a mic for you, buddy. I get it.
0: Yeah. So like I know that I need social media though. So I'm putting myself out there and I'm saying, if your thing's social media and you love social media, come Join me. I need help, and maybe I can help you out and get you some exposure to Seems some restaurant right. owners. Right? Seems like a good plan. Yeah. So, like, that's actually the plan. Hopefully, I'll be doing that in the near future with some folks. So, good luck. You, you need to think like that. You need to create those win-win situations. And I'm sure this listen, is a win for listen, them too.
1: Listen, when I first got in the restaurant business, the amount of money that would go to advertising it—it's obsolete now. Social media does have expense to it, but it's totally different, and you can do it yourself.
0: Yeah. But it's also a shit ton of work. I, oh, it is. I didn't make it far without cursing. Sorry. It's a ton of work. And if you're, you know, and it, it takes away from the thing you're good at, you know? So you have to be mindful that if you're going to do social media really well, at what cost? Yeah, you got to find someone to do it for you. Exactly. So someone um, that
1: gets your vibe.
0: So we talked about for pop ups, you got to really just, you got to find somebody to help you promote it. You really got to make sure there's awareness. What else do people not consider when it comes to pop ups?
1: It, it's so hard because you don't have any a kind of, um, you know standards that are sustained you have to go in and set everything up whether it's the decor plus the menu the food the prep it's just for this limited run so it it is a different calculation you know in a restaurant you have all the you know the kind of the flow of business and your pars and you can prepare and after a while you know what's coming to your business you have sales to demonstrate what you need Um, you don't have that with a pop-up it's like you have to figure it all out kind of in advance yeah. to be successful really.
0: Yeah. Um so yeah there's I mean there's a lot there and um do you know is there a person that you can think of when it comes to pop-ups that's like the the pop-up ninja that just Well, the only first off, now everyone's doing pop-ups, but
1: literally I had only heard it one time in my life and that was from Ludo in Los Angeles, Chef Ludo. And I had never heard of anyone doing it ever. It was, and I've Googled it back then, and nobody. It was just him, and now it, everyone's doing pop ups. I have a bunch of my sous chefs who are doing pop ups. More
0: people need to do pop ups. Yeah, I think the purpose of a pop up isn't necessarily anymore to be profitable. It's to it's to seed interest. It's proof of concept. Correct. It's, it's refining recipes. It's getting your name out there. It's collaborating with other restaurant tours to hit your bandwagon to their bandwagon and to cross promote and help each other out. Mm-hmm. I think that's the new approach with pop ups. Um, I think the new pop up is now delivery ghost kitchens only. Right. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot. Even that bar is lower. Right. Because mm-hmm. all you need is a website really mm-hmm. and a place to cook. Yeah. And sometimes when I apps. sometimes when
1: I get home and I look at like Uber Eats or Doordash, I'm trying to get some dinner because I don't want to move. <laughs> yeah. And I look at like these kitchens that have popped up on Uber. I'm like, is this someone's house? It could be. Who are these people? It's kind of scary
0: to think that you have no idea where that food's coming from.
1: It's exactly somebody right.
0: could be sitting on the toilet cooking for you. And thanks that. for that image. But yeah. yeah, that's exactly that's
1: exactly the concern I've had.
0: Right. <laughs> so um, I'm loving this conversation. So you so eventually you're doing all these pop ups. Um, and the last pop up, and this is the first time I've heard of using a pop up to um, create a win win situation for people who are struggling, um, and you're basically covering their expenses while they figure things out, right? Yeah, um, that's one way I've never thought about it. Usually, when I think of pop ups, it's during off hours where somebody can use their physical assets to then, you know, oh, you want to use my space? Like, you know, well, whatever. one
1: one of the pop ups in particular was a restaurant tour who was leaving town for the month. And didn't want to pay their staff for that month and then figured out if they had me come in for the month, I'd pay their staff and their staff would be back there. Excuse me, would be there when they got back. And that worked. That happened that way. And it did work out. Um, So there's different, uh, you know, people have different reasons for doing it. Yeah. But um, it, it just you have to understand. It's also when it was. It was a terrible time for restaurants. It was Deadsville. Yeah, I mean, you could you could bowl at Burns back then. It yeah. was so
0: slow. And I think you could say the same thing during COVID nineteen, where a lot of people oh, because that's a whole nother. Yeah, yeah, like there was just not a lot going on, so people were just doing. They're popping up whatever they could do to that would be deliverable, well, you yeah. know, like to to that would work in the new landscape.
1: Listen, when like I said, we opened Counterculture on December twenty fourth, Christmas Eve twenty nineteen, and Oof. on March eighteenth, my birthday of twenty twenty. I had to close three restaurants and lay off 132 people. Ouch. And Edison, being 10 years old, could probably absorb some of that. Swigamajig was already three at this time, a little absorbing. Counterculture was three months old. Ouch. And of course, we had all those construction delays and all the nightmares you hear about. We actually had that. So we pivoted immediately. And actually, I'm not even making this up. We did something called pop up pickup, where we popped up in this restaurant and started doing just pickup and delivery. Um, to get something going here, and it 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 helped. Um, it bought us time. It kept some employees around. Um, uh, but you know, you just that's one thing you have to be able to adapt because the restaurant business will throw things at you that you'll never expect. I mean, yeah, COVID is enormous, and the economy tanking in two thousand eight was enormous. But just on a daily basis, the restaurant business. It'll surprise you. <laughs> you never know what you, you're going to. You get. just never know. Yeah.
0: So, I love that you started uh your first, not your first, technically your second restaurant. Or would you call uh Sideburns your second restaurant? Cuz you were
1: Yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, as far as me having a developmental role, yeah. that was my second, yeah.
0: Okay. Um so now that you're and I love that you swung into um
1: Actually, I had created restaurants before that, but go ahead. Oh,
0: okay. Other, I, it's,
1: it's been a long life.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm saying? Uh, so, the first restaurant that, that stemmed out of the pop ups was Edison. Edison. Uh, and what did you learn? I mean, you, now that you have all these experiences under your belt, right? And you, you left your original restaurant to go out and learn, to figure out how to do it right. Now What's you exactly? have all these lessons and you have this chance to go, okay. This is my, call me, my all, all these experiences I've had to, to do it right. I'm going to do it. I think scaling into it is one example mm-hmm. of doing it right. What else did you do right?
1: Um, you know, try and build a business model that works with the artistic um, desire. In other words, you're putting together a menu that's going to drive a business model in an environment. That's no easy trick. That is... That's a hard job right there,
0: so. Okay, say that for me one more time because I want to make sure I got it. Putting together.
1: You know, you're first off, a restaurant's a business. It's, and you're building a business model. And it's being driven by food and service and the cumulative experience. And so, being able to have a menu that you create actually drive that bus. It's not an easy trick. I mean, you. the older I get, the better I get at it because I understand people's likes and dislikes and kind of the…
0: All the data you picked up along the way.
1: Yeah, it's been a lot. It's
0: there. Even though you don't know it, it's under. it's on that low road of the consciousness right. that's influencing you. You're making decisions <sighs> based off of this.
1: Right, so when you're putting that whole thing together, you just can't be thoughtful enough. It's just, yeah, you can't be.
0: So putting together a menu to drive a business model. When you say business model, what do you mean? Are you talking about profitability model? Well, absolutely,
1: branding? because what's the whole goal? I mean, yeah, I, I'm in love with food, yeah. and I'm in love with restaurants, but if they're not financially successful, they won't be able to sustain themselves. And the whole idea is to build a business that sustains itself. So that's the objective is you have to get profitable and you have to be able to sustain your own operations.
0: Okay. So how do you get profitable and how do you sustain your own operations? Well, it's
1: it's it's no easy task. I mean, it's about uh, creating that menu, understanding those food costs, having them priced right, um, uh, establishing the standards of service and how you're going to execute that menu, understanding how you're going to um, build your staff to execute that and what that labor looks like in concert with that menu um, and those menu costs. I mean, that's it. The two biggest items are, you know, everyone knows food cost and labor. Yeah. So you can't put enough attention to calculating that part of the equation. It's the whole kit and caboodle, so to speak.
0: So I think you're absolutely right. I know you're absolutely right. And I think this is back to when I was explaining to you why I started this podcast, because there's restaurants out there that no matter how busy they are, they can have lines at the door, they can have butts and seats during all hours of open up op- business, right? They still might not be profitable because they don't know what to charge to cover their expenses. And this is exactly why my, and no offense, mom and dad, why my parents struggled is they just said, well, the, the place down the street is charging this. Mm-hmm. We should just do a dollar less.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Cause we need to pull people in and we need to add value. And I think mm-hmm. people, and that's exactly, I think how our industry got to where it is, is constantly undershooting the guy next to or the girl next to us. Right. Mm-hmm. And just saying, okay, I just need to be more, I just need to add more value. So we painted ourselves into this corner of being cheap and the smallest margins possible just to hang on so we can add the most value. But what we should be doing is saying, What is the equation that I need? What what, like how do I charge? Like how do I do the menu engineering to find out exactly the cost of this plate and what I need to charge to get a minimum of fifteen percent return on about? And I say minimum because I think people think that that's good, and it's not. You can do better. Yeah, you can do better. But we settle on 15% as being good. If we're good. lucky.
1: I mean, it's, the margins are horrible. And, yeah. and they just keep seemingly getting worse. And post-COVID, they're even worse because wages have completely inflated. And you know what? I'm glad. I don't mind paying high wages. I'm yeah. happy to have people make more money. I just want it all to work. Mm-hmm. I want all the numbers to work.
0: But we've never, we've never paid it forward to the consumer. We've always reacted to the consumer. And out of fear, we fear the consumer. You know, cause the, the consumer won't. Right come now, to we're us.
1: all feeling the in the employee.
0: Well, but the <laughs> because same there's time, not enough of them. Yeah, but I think I that... Mean, a
1: whole swath of people have walked away from this industry. Do you blame them? No, I understand.
0: Yeah, we created. I'm this. I'm just deeply wounded. We by it. created <laughs> this. We are responsible for this. You know, because of we didn't. We never created an industry that was secure for the employee. You know, you might have a secure paycheck, but how much opportunity, like. You know what I'm saying? Like our employees live t- paycheck to paycheck, for the most part. There's not long-term investment for for our employees. Like they don't, they're not putting money away. Do you, do you think I'm wrong? I feel like I there's don't think, energy.
1: I don't think you're wrong. I think that um, there, there's just so many layers now. I mean, yeah. for us in our kind of restaurants, um, we're paying people is really, really, really well. I yeah. mean, our dishwashers are making you know 15 16 17 dollars an hour now
0: now and i think uh, people are paying better now for sure well there's no choice we have
1: to um and but um it's tough you just you just have to be able to figure out that whole equation what is your labor going to cost what is your carrying cost of the the building whatever um it's just it's an equation that
0: And what do I have to charge the consumer to cover my expenses? That's exactly right. Now the flow is going the other way. We're doing the math. We're saying this is what it costs to operate and cover all of our expenses. This is what it's worth. At the same time, all the consumers are going, holy shit, why is a restaurant so expensive now all of a sudden? Because we know our value now. We know the cost of doing business. And And we don't have a
1: choice. Yeah, we have to. Because everything is so inflated. I mean, just even liquor, beer, wine, and food has gone through the roof in the last 18
0: months. Yeah, but you know, food um, also, Like, if you look back at like the, I want to say if you look back at the early uh, 20th century, I don't know the numbers exactly, but there's a big dramatic difference between what people paid percentage of their income for food in 1905. It was like 25% of income went to food. Today, it's like 12%. So what that says is that we don't like people like we bastardized, we've, we've created this false interpretation of what the value of food is. But food isn't as valuable as valuable as it once was because it's shit now because we d- destroyed food in the process. Don't get of, me started. You know what I'm saying? So like Clearly. We, we've trained the consumer to think that that's what's that cheap, shitty food is, a, is the norm. But food done right Food done with values and sustainable efforts is expensive Mm -hmm. and food should be 25% of your income.
1: Mm -hmm. I agree. We're getting back there.
0: Mm -hmm. So we have to force it to happen. For
1: those of us in the industry, food's a lot more of our income than 25%.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Some of us just eat to live, you know? Yeah. So I I think it's important that we re-inject a value and we help the consumer know what food done right costs because their perception of the value of food has been shifted over the past 30 years. That's a good point right I don't know I'm really enjoying today's conversation I'm probably talking too much though no I don't know you're cool <laughs> um, so let's okay we discussed pop-ups we talked about Edison's and how you started do what you started doing differently was the the equation to figure out what the you're taking your labor your cost of goods sold your labor costs and you're figuring out this is what I need to charge mm-hmm. to be a sustainable business mm-hmm. that's what we just covered and we went into a few tangents and rabbit holes along the way what else
1: Um, knowing how to open your day parts. In other words, it's easy to open a restaurant, so to speak, but knowing how to open your day parts, are you opening for dinner? Are you opening for lunch? Are you opening for brunch? Are you opening for breakfast? Whatever your plan is, the way you launch those day parts is really critical because once you open them, it's very hard to close them. So if you're opening a restaurant that you want to do many day parts, you need to be very aware of how you're releasing those because you might have one day part where people flood to you, maybe dinner, maybe they love but At lunch, you're dead. It's hard to open for lunch and be open, be dead, and then decide to close and then decide to ever reopen, especially if that lunch shift was part of your business plan, mm-hmm. right? If that income stream at lunchtime was part of that original projection, What are you going to do? Exactly. So layering those openings and understanding how to go after them. And one of the things that I've learned that I think is really valuable is it's almost like you should launch each shift on its own with its own dedicated energy. Mm. Like open for dinner and then launch your lunch and or your brunch or whatever you're doing. But think, instead of rolling it all out, which can be hard to fill them all. Yes. And yes. then you look like, oh, you got a terrible lunch, but you got to pack dinner or vice versa. Yes. So it's really critical to assess how you open your day parts in a new restaurant.
0: And I love this because it's going on to kind of the, how we started with swinging in. You don't open on day one, you know, balls to the wall, all all hands on deck. Cause it's gonna be hard to drive traffic to all of that. But if you swing in, you start with pop-ups. You said we got something. Okay, let's go from from pop ups to one day part. Okay, we got that locked in. We're full. Okay, now let's create. And this also kind of plays off the idea of the law of diminishing returns. And to keep, once things start to kind of plateau, the only way you kind of keep people coming in is by growing. But if you scale growth, then you can kind of stay interesting. So now it's like oh. Th- that restaurant's open for lunch now? That's interesting. You're
1: exactly right. You know? That is what I've learned. Exactly that right there. And it's taken me quite a few years to you, learn that.
0: So you gotta you got to plan growth. And you mm-hmm. got to grow in increments. You don't go all bore all at once.
1: Unless you're in something that you're just so sure of it. Like if you're, I don't know, a freaking Bobby Flay on the corner of yeah. I don't know what and where. That's a risk. Right. But, you know, it's yeah. different. But it's hard. It's a hard business to calculate all that.
0: Yeah. And that's why businesses are undercapitalized because they go try to do too much too soon. But if you scale into it, you can right. let it cash flow and, and it eats everything
1: up. And capital. then you can't expect, you have no expectation of what's going to go wrong. And after opening so many restaurants, myself, so many, even in this one, you're like, ah, yeah, well, I understand it all now. Yeah. And then you're like, what do you mean they put the wrong countertops in? <laughs> We're supposed <laughs> to open in two weeks.
0: I love it. I'm really enjoying today's conversation. Thank you so much. So, um, you, you had a almost 10 year run. Before you open, how much time elapsed between Edison and uh, your, your, not technically you're not your, se- your second, but in this restaurant group, your second restaurant, which is uh, Swigamajigs?
1: Um, probably we were six years in.
0: Okay. Maybe about six how years How would you and- know you were ready? Sorry, I cut you short.
1: No worries. Um, we were already looking at other projects. I'm already looking at other projects right now. I mean, I kind of, like you said at the beginning, I have an insatiable uh, appetite. And um, there's always so many new things that you want to do and experience. So, we we knew that Sparkman Wharf was a very different thing. It's a it's a kiosk business basically. It's like a, a mall kiosk. It's it's a container village at Sparkman Wharf, and we're in a double container doing craft cocktails and fish and chips, and. That was an easy layup. There wasn't a big investment in, so that was very easy. You know, understanding when we were ready to open something as big as Counterculture, that that was different because Counterculture is, you know, twice the size of Edison and um, endeavors to do a lot more day parts than Edison. Edison, we're just serving dinner seven nights a week. Counterculture, we're serving dinner seven nights a week and Saturday and Sunday brunch. But we're getting ready to open uh, Monday through Friday for the afternoons too. We're excited.
0: Okay, um, so when you went to Swing the jig, where was Edison? Did you need to be there? Was it self-sustained? Was it was it its own machine, or could, were you able to remove yourself from it to focus? Well, on the
1: when project? we first opened it, I was there in the box training and working and cutting fish and dropping fries like everybody else. But once we get it up and running, um, we put in a leader to run it, Erwin, and he ran it really well for a really long time. Now we have him working in the other restaurants because he's so talented. But um, you know, it's always about you know, cultivating leadership and having them have the auto- autonomy to run their shifts. And uh, and that's what we're doing in all three restaurants now so that, you know, I can go and pursue other projects. What
0: is Why is autonomy so important?
1: I think people need um, parameters and rules and policies to feel safe. But I think they need autonomy to feel healthy and contributing and like it's a piece of them and a part of them. And I think it's really important to have autonomy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... It- uh, I think it was Daniel Pink writes about autonomy um, in his book drive. And he, he characterizes three things. I can't remember off the top of my head, but autonomy is absolutely one of those things. And people need a sense of free will. Exactly. Because otherwise we're stifled. We, we can't live on our dreams. We can't, con- tr- we can't contribute creatively. We need to express ourselves and autonomy allows that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so in 2014, um w- Take us through your your original vision for Swigamajig and, and what your strategy was with this concept.
1: Well, there were ten containers and um, there was many chefs in town involved, and I basically said, "Let's let them all do what they want to do." And w- because, you know, one of them wanted to do tacos, one of them wanted to do tapas, one of them was going to do Vietnamese, one of them, you know, noodles. Uh, then there was, you know, your chicken sandwich burger place, and what were we going to do? And we had already had this word rolling around in our uh, kind of our storyboards called swigamajig. Um, we just love the word. We think it sounds like, you know, a drunken fisherman or something, <laughs> uh, you know. So we we always dug that word. And I, I realized nobody was doing kind of really good Florida fish, fish and chips. Um, we do peri-peri shrimp, conch fritters. We do a killer octopus mm-hmm. salad. Um, so... I said, you know, we should be the seafood person. Nobody has picked that yet, so we'll do fish and chips and... We do make the very best French fries in all of Tampa.
0: I love a good French fry, so. Um,
1: Dude, I'm telling you, this French fries at <laughs> Swigamajigger are absolutely the best French fries in Tampa. I'm not. I'm, I literally mean that with all my heart. I don't
0: know. I think it's like the 25% Irish in me that just loves potatoes. I believe
1: that. I, I don't even have that, and I love uh, potatoes, man.
0: It's so good.
1: Potatoes have uh, you know been such a part of my life. When I was maybe six years old, I was in a restaurant with my family. And it was a seafood – it was a seafood restaurant. And the server comes over to ask, you know, baked potato or French fries with what I yeah. ordered. And I said, French fries. She brought me a baked potato.
0: Yeah, I, I blame all the starch.
1: Well, she brought right. me a baked potato. And I tagged on my dad and said, I wanted fries. And so my dad asked her. And she brings – she leaves me the baked potato and brings me the French fries. Do you know that I had a seafood platter? I didn't even touch the seafood. I was so <laughs> fascinated that a potato could be baked and fluffy – And then crispy and fried. I just sat there mystified by the potato at six years of age. I can vividly remember it. So, you know, I might have a little Irish in me because I love potatoes.
0: All right. Uh, I love it, man. Potatoes are great. So, um, okay. So this is – so containers, I'm thinking this is like a – This is a food court scenario. I'm I'm Mm -hmm. kind of figuring that out. Um, And how does that work, like, economically? Like, do you pay rent? Do you rent out your, like, this? Oh, yeah, you
1: definitely pay rent. You pay a a base rent. And when it's, like, a kiosk business like that, you pay a percentage rent, like, in a mall. Um, And we're lucky. We have a liquor license out there. So we have liquor, beer, and wine, plus our food sales. Um, You know, I've looked at other food hall-type scenarios. And when we don't get any of the bar, like, a lot of food halls... The owner of the food hall wants the bar, and then you can just come and be a business with food. Well, it's very hard to make it just on the food. Um, For us at Swingamajig, we got lucky. We were able to get a liquor license and do craft cocktails, and the two income streams of of that craft cocktail and that food has made it very very lucrative for us to be out there. I can't imagine what it would be like if we didn't have that.
0: Did all the the vendors in that space have the, the They all have
1: beer and wine, but none of the vendors have liquor. But I mean, I I know more liquor is coming and you know, there's there's real, you know, brick-and-mortar restaurants there serving alcohol, and you can walk with that and all that. So it's changing and evolving, and that's fine. But I just know for us, it was a huge income driver, and that made that really lucrative. So when we looked at other food halls, we were, too, we were literally too afraid to, like, wow, no bar. I mean –
0: yeah, can we margins. make
1: it just on food it yeah. was kind
0: of scary what was different about you that lets you do liquor where others only had food and wine? was it your other license for um edison that you carried know, over
1: no no i i just had a friend who had a liquor license uh that i ended up buying i just kismet sometimes things just line up you, there's no reason for them to line up yeah. but they do and i talked you know to my team and i was like i I actually think we can get a liquor license for this. Yeah, And when we asked the powers that be at the park, everybody was game. So we got lucky.
0: Yeah. And I think um, also it gets really kind of hard with liquor licensing because it's all dependent on the city, the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- those rules are different. Mm-hmm. So in, in Tampa, I'm, I'm guessing there's only so many licenses mm-hmm. that are given out. Mm-hmm. And you have to, in order to get a license, you need to purchase it or somebody needs to sell it to you. Do you think but, that's a good model?
1: Well, you, you have restaurant licenses, yeah. which are, Infinitely cheaper. I mean, it's only like eighteen hundred and twenty bucks a year to have a restaurant liquor license. Which, as long as you're selling fifty one percent food, you're locked and loaded, no issues. So that's all. You know, both Edison and Counterculture have a restaurant liquor license, and most everyone in town does. Um, but you know, when you have to buy the kind of license we bought, I mean, they're through the roof right now. In fact. Um, I heard somebody called me and asked me if I wanted to sell that, and they offered me like a hundred and eighty-five thousand dollars for it.
0: Holy cow!
1: Yeah, uh, we paid infinitely lower than that. So. What's the
0: reason for for governing? Or I
1: think those liquor licenses, those. Um, Four COPs are harder. What do you mean by
0: four COPs? It's
1: the, in other words, a restaurant liquor license is about that restaurant, the seats, the square footage, and you have to sell 51%. But the other liquor license, a quota license, so to speak, is the kind of license that you can take from bar to bar. You don't have to have specific seats or whatever, and they're the ones that are so expensive. So there's two ways to get liquor. But if you're opening a restaurant, you just get a restaurant license. But if you're opening a box in a park and you don't have seating or square footage, you have to buy that kind of license.
0: Okay. And what's the reason for dividing those two? Is it like, what's because the benefit? Because there's so from? many
1: bars and different kind of operations that serve liquor and they there's, there's different governing rules for that. But
0: why limit the amount that you, handle, you hand out?
1: I think you're going to have to ask
0: the government. Is it because I just don't want a bunch of drunk people walking all over the place? Well,
1: I don't know. I just I, – I don't know. I really don't have an answer for that.
0: And these are the kind of questions that I want to know because my mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? How do we get aligned? And this is something that's never happened. Before.
1: Actually, the thing that happened for restaurants that where they lowered the square footage to have a restaurant liquor license was a gift to every restaurateur in our yeah. area. So I'm not complaining.
0: Yeah. So it's making we're making progress. But, but in the past, what we needed to do is to elect people to lobby for us, and this is what the, the our state restaurant associations claim Always. to do. And, and you know, and that's what they're they're saying they're doing to us. But why not take that? and kind of share this dialogue with everybody in the, in the, in the country, every restaurant tour in the country. And if we can all say, Hey, wait a second, screw this. Like, why can't we have more licenses? Why are you limiting that? Like, I think it's going to take a lot. I'm sure there's
1: a very good reason for it all.
0: I would like to know. I mean, I'm sure too, but what can we do? I'm sure
1: there's a lot of people listening right now that have the answer and want to call you and tell you,
0: how does this guy have a restaurant business podcast and he doesn't know the answer to that. Right? (laughs) Well, I would love to find out. Um, so the only th- restaurant we haven't really talked or spoken about yet, uh, unless there's anything, any lessons about jigs that you can drop on us lessons you learned the hard way or things you wish you would have known going into that.
1: Uh, you know, just um, being a good neighbor when you're in a, a, a business like that with a lot of little neighbors doing food around you, just being a good neighbor. What and does it, that mean? Well, being supportive. Um, Being supportive because you want everyone to thrive. If everyone thrives, the park thrives, Mm -hmm. right? So I think being a good neighbor, doing your best job, being immaculate, doing the best job you can do so that you help that park thrive is is really the the, the only way to operate.
0: And I think that mentality of being a good neighbor needs to extend beyond like, literally sharing the same space. I think communities... Restaurant communities need to be good neighbors to each other. Right?
1: There's no question about it. Another thing that happens is when you when you have a lease or a restaurant in a building with other businesses, they blame the restaurant for everything. Yeah. If there's anything ever dirty or any trash anywhere, oh, the restaurant did it. The restaurant did it. If there's some transient, well, it must be a restaurant employee. Um, that's why it's so important to be a good neighbor when yeah. you're in the restaurant business yeah. because there's those generalities. There, people are going to kind of throw, you know, spray on you. And you wanna
0: prove them wrong. Okay, so your your, your newest restaurant, Counterculture, which is where we are today, um, opened uh, 2019, just before the pandemic. Uh, I don't wanna spend a lot of time talking about the pandemic because hopefully we never experience that again. Knock on wood. I'm is with you. not
1: a lot of wood, a lot that. of I mean, composite maybe. Me, tell me, remind me to, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, knock on those. There you go, <laughs> that was close. Um, since the recovery of we're, we're we're still coming out of it we're still very much very much feeling the impacts of covid-19 but any new lessons with this concept the things that you did differently things that you wish you would have known before starting any aha moments with what you're doing here what are you doing here
1: well the the lesson that i have learned is that you have to be so flexible you have to be able to adapt to improvise to reinvent um, because you just don't know what's going to happen, and if you're, you know, fic- we all know the old restaurant that's been there forever that everybody loved, but then it starts to fossilize. They never change anything. The clientele starts to die off, and no new clientele goes there. And the family that owns it or the people that own it don't know how to change that game. It didn't. It wasn't broke for a while. It was working, and so that restaurant just dies. Right? We all know those stories in our hometown. Yeah. So. For a restaurant, especially post COVID, you just have to be prepared to be fluid, to adapt, to change, to pivot, to create um, promotions and offerings and things that will drive people to your business.
0: So, again, not and I I want to move beyond COVID nineteen because I I think we need to put that crap behind us. But since things have gotten better mm-hmm. since like the beginning, let's say the beginning of two thousand twenty one when things people are now vaccinated, and I was in Florida in March of 2021. So I know things have been good because I was here and I was like, holy shit, was there ever a pandemic in Florida? <laughs> Cause people were out doing stuff, spending money. How have you evolved and pivoted and adapted your, your business since the beginning of this year?
1: Well, we are just, you know, we're getting ready to open. It was a perfect example is what we're getting ready to do with our Monday through Friday day part, because you know, We would have been open for lunch a long time ago. Uh, But COVID, we were like, uh, we were just, let's get open for dinner and keep our labor down and make sure this works. So we've done that. We've just focused on dinner and then brunch. We got back to Saturday and Sunday brunch, which has been extraordinarily well received. And so now it's our job to fill the lunch seats. So we're working hard on that. So, you know, that wasn't our original plan. So the uh, the the concept of rethinking and adapting and changing and improvising it's it's an everyday constant in this industry. It really is.
0: Yeah. Um, so I guess I've loved today's conversation. Thank you, and um, thanks for having me. Oh, it's been it's been a pleasure, really. Uh, the mission statement again is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. How have you transformed as a chef owner? Uh, who is Genie today versus Genie back when you got started?
1: Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, when I first got started, I was on fire. I thought I, you know, had You're this singular vision <laughs> of what I could do, what I was, where I was going, and, you know, life hands you a whole different uh, scenario than you fantasized. And so today, I, I take the greatest joy right now in the people that I've inspired that have found their way into a career Um, that's my greatest joy. You know, when I was in Cyprus, um, there was no women working in the kitchen. None. Mm -hmm. The women were called Lanzas. They were cleaners. And I would see all these women just cleaning everything. But there was this very big girl. I'm short. I don't know if you saw me stand up, but there was this very (laughs) big woman that would come in every time I would do something. Uh, for example, in this story, I'm rolling sushi and I'm trying to teach all these men to roll sushi and she would come and stand over me um, and just stare at what I was doing. And, you know, after a few times of that, I'm like, you know, what are, why are you, what are you doing? And I just realized she can do this. So I stepped away. I said, you know, Alana, go ahead and do this. She rolled sushi like she was Masa from freaking Columbus Circle in New York. I'm like, oh, my God, what, what, what? why are you Alonza? Well, that's what they let you do I said well what have you done well she had come from like the Mandarin Oriental in like Bangkok where she was like number one commas or something I mean she was like this and now so I had to lobby to get her that job and now that I, I haven't seen her in years but we're connected on Facebook And every time she has some life thing, she reaches out to me because she really believes that that changed her life to have that career. And now she has her own sushi business. That's beautiful. So when you have an experience like that, you realize that is the bigger picture. That is the bigger payoff. Yeah, I'm real happy when someone likes my, you know, whatever, whatever food. I am. I still eat that up like it's no tomorrow, like there's no tomorrow. But when you really do realize that you had a little part in changing someone's life, it's unbelievably fortifying.
0: Inspire, empower, transform. Exactly. We we have the ability to do that. We can transform lives. And I think the, the secret to being a successful restaurateur is in creating opportunities for others. Exactly. You know, you're exactly and, right. Yep. And, and giving them those, those, those paths for growth. And, and I think the, one of the biggest things I've seen, it comes up time and time again when I ask people and I didn't get to ask you, I maybe didn't directly ask you this question today. When did you know, when did you know that this was going to be your path? And almost, I would say 60% of the time, 70% of the time, a, a clearly majority of the time people say, somebody said that I was good at this. Somebody saw me. Somebody recognized my strength, and I didn't know until somebody told me and reinforced what I was good at. And it was being seen and being valued for what I was good at. That I, th- I think that's what we're. That's what t- creates passion. Is being is, is having s- definite purpose, and being told and being in helping. I do
1: have a moment like that. Yeah, it was literally the first time um, I had been working with Byrne for about a year, and uh, I always was doing what he was telling me. And one time he said to me. You want to make something for me? And I said, of course. And I made a fennel gratin. I can remember it like it was tomorrow. I braised off fennel, uh, and then I built a gratine uh, with this cheese blend, and then I garnished it with a black olive tapenade. And uh, I'll never forget that. It was probably one of the greatest moments of my life. He was blown away. He was raving about it. And uh, I had seen him just be so difficult with everybody with food. So to see him, it's actually choking me up to see that he liked that little goofy dish that I kind of was trying to impress him with. I thought, I know I can do this now.
0: Yeah. It's one thing to get approval from a guest. It's another thing to get approval from someone that you respect and admire. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, for sure. That goes a long way. Powerful stuff. Be somebody's opportunity. If you see somebody who's good at something, let them know, tell them because they might not be aware of it. It's very powerful. Like you can change somebody's life. And you did that. And somebody did that for you, right? Mm-hmm. It's cool shit. Sorry, I'm not trying to make you cry, but that means so, I'm doing a good job. <laughs> no, you're obviously very
1: good at what you do too. young thank man. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay. So the last question before we go to the speed round again, mission statement, inspire power and transform the industry. What's broken with the industry right now that we need to change?
1: Wow. That's a That's a hard question.
0: Which, which one do you pick? Right. What's like yeah, so many things? Yeah. That we I can mean, do what is
1: bro? well, I think that, you know, when COVID first hit, uh, Gabrielle Hamilton from Prune in New York wrote this extraordinary article about that it doesn't work, that we're all finding out that the restaurant business doesn't work. The margins are so small. So I think the way that we're doing business, um, has there, there just cannot be enough analysis because with all the increasing wages... With all the increasing cleaning, with all the increasing um, raw costs, and if the margins were already so low, what really is going to happen and it remains to be seen so what's broken is that the original equation um needs to be uh you know analyzed and figured out that in this new normal for lack of a better phrase, even though I hate that one um how are we going to sustain ourselves?
0: Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, the the business model is broken. For the longest time, we just re, we copy, we copy and paste what those before us did and we recreate, we, we learn what they did and we carry those business models with us. A hundred years later, when the world around us is changing, right? And we, we continue to, to take this formula that's clearly broken and we just go with it because that's all we know. But we need, I think you're right. Like I think, well, let me ask you, like what is the solution? What, before I answer the question, I want to know what you're,
1: Well, it's, you know, part of it is what you said earlier. It's about really communicating to the guest what this costs and how we can all share that expense because the guest is going to have to absorb it. The vendors, the distributors, everyone has to absorb a little bit of this.
0: Yeah. But I think we need to break the habit of just trying to beat the person next to us because if we just try to beat the person next to us, and it's like, yeah, we want to be competitive, but if we're just trying to slowly, you know, I think what, like, like I said earlier, we slowly moved in this direction of just trying to be the add, add more for less, right? So I think we need to start communicating and saying it's not a matter of who provides the cheapest meal. It's a matter of knowing what the cost of producing that meal is, and we all use the same equation. So we are, we're competing on different verticals like service and relationships and quality, right? Not on cheapness.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I just, uh, it makes me think about what you told me when we first sat down and this idea of this little boy growing up with these parents in the restaurant business and that restaurant business being so hard. I, I just completely see it in your eyes and I, I feel ya. I understand You're gonna make it. me cry. <laughs> I understand it so well. I really do, brother, I really do.
0: Whew. Damn it, Jeannie. <laughs> just call me Oprah. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. Oprah makes everyone cry. Yeah. Thank you for seeing that and recognizing that. Um, I've loved this conversation. I'm going to take one more quick break before I cry publicly to thank our sponsors and uh, we'll be back to bust on a true speed round. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Did you know that in 2020, the number of people using ordering and delivery services surged by 30%? And as a restaurant owner, it's crucial to have the ability to meet guests where they are, and that's where Pop Menu comes in. Pop Menu gives restaurant owners the tools they need to transform their online presence, simplify ordering and delivery, and take control of marketing. Pop menu will build your restaurant, a website that's designed to engage guests. Pop menu allows you to showcase your menu with featured photos and reviews, which means it's time to ditch those boring PDFs. But pop menu is so much more than just online menus. It is the simple and efficient way to streamline your ordering experience. Each pop menu site is built with an in-house delivery option to open more revenue streams and greet Guests wherever they want to eat. This means no more phone orders or losing commission to third party apps. And you can easily set up curbside pickup and contactless ordering. Plus pop menu's remarketing tools enable you to build long lasting relationships with your guests. You can now send automated smart messages based on past orders, or you can send special offers to incentivize new orders. Trust me, pop menu will take your restaurant to the next level. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month. Plus, lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. One more time for good measure, popmenu.com slash unstoppable. you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant unstoppable members get three months. Absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven. Shifts dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back. The first question I have for you is: What is your it factor—a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? My sense of humor. What is your biggest weakness? And I have no idea what you're talking about with this.
1: Uh, my my emotional temper.
0: Ooh, how do you deal with that?
1: You wanted candid, right?
0: Yeah. But that, that I think that's a common. Well, one. it's
1: subsiding as I'm aging.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, the world's changing too. Where, where, a lot, where we're a lot—we're a lot less forgiving of emotional unintelligence uh, of losing your emotions, right? I hope so. Yeah. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process?
1: You mean when I'm in, interviewing a potential employee? Yes, I'm looking for hints about their work ethic.
0: Beautiful. And what what kind of hints? are good suggestions that they have.
1: Well, you look at their track record, you look at their employment history, and then you start to listen to the stories of where they went, why they went, how they left. And you start to hear what really happened.
0: Yeah. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today?
1: Uh, labor finding uh, line cooks. You know, what we're missing is not the management. There's lots of management applications, yeah. uh, whether it's for sous chefs, chefs, uh, general managers, bar managers, what isn't there anymore is waiters, line cooks, busboys. That segment is very
0: hard to fill right now. I kind of want to blame parents.
1: Okay, you can blame parents,
0: <laughs> and it's true. But like, I feel like kids don't aren't encouraged to go out and work anymore. There's no question
1: that there's something uh, there's something salient about what you're saying. That's-
0: I grew up working.
1: Don't even get me started. you heard me say I grew up at a beach resort. I grew up in a I restaurant. was enslaved at nine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I would get off the
0: bus. It's not child labor if they are family, right? <laughs> I, I guess not
1: I would get off the bus and run so fast home because I knew that if I didn't get all my chores done I couldn't kick it up kick back and watch TV at night I knew it I'd be I mean, doing
0: chores I just I just see so many kids that need a kick in the friggin' ass and I mean this is me getting I must be getting old because I sound like an old man right now but it's I feel like it's a it's a it's the same story always and always like the, the next generation is a little less. Ambitious and seems like it. Break. I don't want to generalize.
1: It's <laughs> kind of painful though
0: uh, What is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team a core value a way to be a way to act?
1: Oh, uh, uh, So many thoughts run to my mind uh, it, it always is truth and menuing and I know I said that earlier, but here's the thing Everybody involved in that process in that in any kitchen has to believe in that menu and want to deliver it. So it's about really trying to get people to understand um, if they're not culinarily inspired, because sometimes you end up with people working with you who you know don't want to be chefs. Yeah. They're just there because it's a J-O-B. Yeah, and you got to love those folks too.
0: You got to sell the menu to your team. Correct. So it's about getting a,
1: having a common purpose and bringing everyone together and understanding yeah. the vision.
0: What's one uncommon standard of service you teach your teams? I mean, it's common within the four walls of your restaurants to go above and beyond, but uncommon.
1: Um, it's always to be yourself. Uh, I don't want carbon copy people. I want people to bring their personalities to the table. Um, the standards of service, we're already expecting you to uphold, but we really do want people to be themselves at the table because I, I, I believe that read, reads through. I mean, they are the ambassador to the restaurant, to the guest yes. for the restaurant, and so... Um, yeah, that's kind of a big deal to us.
0: What is one book that's a must read for anybody who's trying to be a better person or restaurant owner?
1: Wow. Wow. Wow.
0: You can't say Danny Meyer sitting on the table.
1: No, I'm not going to okay. say Danny Meyer, although it's a good book. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, There's so many books. God, it's really hard to pick one. To be a better person, uh, Aesop's Fables. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: don't even know what that book is. What is it?
1: It's a fable about. How, it's a book of fables of how to uh, be a better person. Oh, right. <laughs> um, you know, I really don't know. I, i'm so I'm like going in ten different directions. I don't know whether to go into a mental health direction or into a culinary direction. Let's go with mental health
0: because this book isn't about the food it's it's more about the, the everything else that you need to be good at other than the food. The next question I have for you is what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough?
1: What do I think restaurant tours don't do often enough? Probably eating their own restaurants right? and really see the experience
0: yeah that's huge.
1: And and walk it from the front to the back, the back to the front and really see
0: Yeah, a similar piece of advice I've gotten up which I've never forgotten is sit in every seat. Oh yeah. Right? And and experience it from the perspective of each guest. Cuz you see things that you don't normally see. Mm-hmm. Like Oh crap, there's this air conditioner blasting on me. Oh crap, at this hour the sun's right in my eyes. Absolutely. And you just it's all about perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Um name one service you've hired or outsourced. So this is something that you can never do as good as somebody who is better than you. Surround yourself with people who are better than you, right? Mm-hmm. You've already named one, your friends, your marketing friends, mm-hmm. right? Um maybe we can give them another shout out. I
1: would say another another thing that I farmed out is is baking bread. Um, there's a really good bakery here in town, Jameson bake house, and uh, they just make really phenomenal, uh, sourdough bread. We, yeah. we just, we don't, we're not set up to bake really great bread. So why not have great people bake your bread?
0: And that's how we need to be thinking for sure as restaurant is how do we create win-win situations for other people who mm-hmm. do things better than us instead of saying, wow, they're better. To, or at that, then You've compete. always
1: got to be willing to yeah. work with people better than you, hire people smarter than you. You just you just got to be fearless in that way. Yeah,
0: we got to yeah because you're
1: never going to know it all.
0: Yeah, I love it. Um, what is one piece of technology that you've recently adopted within your restaurant that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? Well, we.
1: We utilize what we call shift notes, and our shift notes uh, go out every single night from each restaurant to all the group of management, and that tool is invaluable because, you know, people have days off, and they're not informed about the shift before them or whatever, and just having that, you know, going in email and having people responding to it in real time, and that just keeps the blood flowing and everybody, you know, tracking, um, that, that that's probably the most...
0: Is that a standalone company or is it a, a, an appendage of another one? Do you know?
1: No, us, we have something internally, oh, internally. called shift notes got it, got it, got it. that we all have to kind of uh, caretake to everyone who's on duty in management has to, has to com- contribute to it every shift.
0: So where does this live? Is it a Google document? Is it uh, a, like where is it just a word document? That it's kind
1: asking? of a word document that everybody adapts, that everybody uses and fills out like a template every night. Okay. And then the, and then the, the leader of the kitchen, the leader of the dining room all have to respond to all these questions. Okay.
0: So if you're um, opening up your shift note right now, where, where does it live?
1: Uh, I, on my computer and email. And so, we also have, there's also a hard copy in the restaurants, but, um, Yeah, that's where everything is. I can find out what our sales were what every single dish that had any issue I can know about any employment issue any maintenance issue. It's all there every single day document a living document that is reiterated every single
0: night. Got it. Beautiful. And this is the last question. We made it to the end. Are you ready for it? It's It's a doozy. So pay attention. Get ready. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants. Would it be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy? What would those three pieces of wisdom be?
1: I love your family. One. Uh, love your, your work family. Two. And um, love yourself.
0: Three. I've loved this conversation. Jeannie. Thank you so thank much. You, you've you've been, you've been you. great. And thank you. I want to be able to do what I do without people like you. So thank you. Uh, who do you respect and admire in this industry? And if they, if you find out there were guests on my show, you'd be absolutely tuning in to listen to that story.
1: I respect a lot of people. I respect almost anybody who tries to get into this business because I know how hard it is. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of folks in this town that I have just mad respect for. They've been able to sustain a life, sustain a career, sustain their families through an industry that is just, at the very least, daily disruption. (laughs) It's no joke. Um, So i I respect so many people. I mean, are you looking for names? Because- yeah
0: like this is I'm trying to let my guests determine who I speak to mm-hmm. because I believe success recognizes success and uh, I want I want the podcast I want to create systems around who I find. Mm-hmm. so it's it's authentic, it's real, it's genuine, it's organic.
1: Hmm. Well, I I respect all kind of people in our market in Florida across the state. There's all kinds of great chefs that I know. Uh, there's a lot of people that I respect, but I'll just I'll just keep it um, close to home. You know, the restaurant community in Tampa has grown ex- exponentially. Um, so I can think of the old timers that are still here that I just big ups and mad love for, you know, the Columbia Group, the Burns Group. Um, I even think about Wright's sandwich shop. Uh, you know, those people have been there forever and they still do a really damn good sandwich. Then I look at the folks, um, like, you know, um the different chefs around, Michael Budicavoli, uh um, when you think about, you know, the people at, you know, on Swan and Okanola and you you think about uh, Farrell and BT. We've got a lot of great people in this community trying to do a really good job.
0: You're dropping huge names on me right now. Um, So look out Wright's Columbia Group Burns. Uh, it's Michael. I didn't catch the last name. I did, but I can't repeat it. It was too much... For me to remember feral a BT. cacciatore <laughs> can't
1: remember but a cavoli i
0: inherited my mother's tongue and she's irish and i had the worst time spitting on <laughs> italian names it's embarrassing it's uh, <laughs> so anyway you've been great thank, thank, thank you. you so much uh and i just the only thing that's left to say is there is no questioning chef genie you are unstoppable <laughs> <laughs> cheers
1: cheers thank you
0: there we go another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable special thanks to today's guest chef genie parola man i really enjoyed hanging out with you today chef genie and what a great story you had for us and i told you guys it got a little emotional uh but we were able to shake ourselves out of that uh it's all right to get a little emotional sometimes right no shame no shame. But anyway, uh, just again, thank you so much, Chef Jeannie, for letting us come in and share your story. It was an awesome one. Uh, we have some really cool stuff happening in Restaurant Unstoppable Network this week. If you're actually catching today's episode early, You can still join us for 12 p.m. We're popping off the new year with our book club, the Restaurant Unstoppable Book Club. We're reading Traction. Get a grip on your business. So this is a three-month-long book club. Well, I mean, the book club itself is infinity. It just keeps on going, but we spend three months on each book. So the idea behind this book club is to really dive deep into the book and not just read the book, but execute the lessons of the book In our business. So, if that sounds like you're something you'd be interested in, come hang out with us today at noon. Uh, You still got time. And then uh, later in the week, we have another three part workshop coming at you with Stephanie Robson. So, Stephanie joined us not that long ago uh, to do a workshop all on business planning this time around. And if you guys did not catch that three part workshop on business planning, you've got to go back and listen to it. Uh, This time around, she's going to take us through kitchen design and layout and this is going to be another three-part workshop so she's joining us this week we're going to take a week off next week because i am going to be busy recording on site and uh then she's joining us the following week and the week after that and uh speaking of recording on site in 2022 uh i really want to get much more intentional i want to slow down and actually i'm, I'm thinking of the words from mark canvas from Canlis restaurant uh, when I was out there, I think it was in 2018 when I was tr- driving all over the country. I, I swung by Canvas Restaurant and just talking to him, uh, he said, "Have you ever thought about just slowing down and just, you know, instead of doing a lot of work, just doing what you do better?" And that kind of like hit a vein with me and it really stuck with me ever since. And I, I-, I think that's the direction I want to take Restaurant Stoppable going forward is just. Instead of focusing on doing more, just doing what we already do, but do it better. And on that note, we're going to have some company on the road. Uh, Hopefully in the future, I'm going to be, you know, using Restaurant Unstoppable, this platform to create opportunity for others and collaborate on doing more video uh, better social media, uh, documentaries. Maybe Jared has some other things up his sleeve. Who knows? Um, and that's kind of going to be my, my focus going forward is really being much more intentional, slowing down and making better relationships, not more relationships. So with that said, uh, happy new year. I can't wait to dive into 2022 and I hope you guys are, are right there with me. All right. Until next time, peace out.